0: Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Penabad. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie.
1: Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Penabad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities and the ways in which the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Today, I will be speaking with Greg Pasquarelli co-founder of the New York-based architectural firm Shop Architects. Together, we will explore how Shop is challenging both the means and methods for how we design and produce buildings, as well as the archaic structures that guide the practice of architecture today. Greg will share insights into the firm's iconic buildings, highlighting the fusion of creativity, technology, and technical precision that defines the work. But before beginning the conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. Greg received a Bachelor of Science from the School of Business at Villanova University and a Master's of Architecture from Columbia University. He co-founded the firm of Shop Architects in 1997. And since, since that time, the firm has grown from a small design studio based in New York City to a leading architectural practice with a global footprint. I would like to highlight a few of the firm's notable projects, which include the Barclays Center at Atlantic Yards in Brooklyn, the two-mile Esplanade and Park along the East River in New York City, the Innovation Hub government complex in Botswana, the super tall pencil tower at 111 West 57th Street, and the recently completed Uber headquarters in San Francisco. In addition to his active professional practice, Greg is an adjunct associate professor of architecture at Columbia University, and he has also taught at Yale, at the University of Virginia, and the University of Florida. He has lectured globally and has been featured in leading periodicals, including Architectural Record, The New Yorker, The New York Times, Wallpaper, and Wired Magazine, just to name a few. Greg, welcome to On Cities. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you today.
2: Thank you very much, Carrie. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So Greg, I begin usually by asking my guests where they grew up in an effort to understand how our early childhood experiences helped to shape our thoughts about cities and the built environment. So Greg, where did you spend your formative years and how do you think that it influenced your thinking about the world?
2: I think, uh, well, I grew up in New York um, and I grew up in the boroughs and uh, my formative years were mostly in Queens and um, and then a little bit on Long Island. And then I've been back in Manhattan now for 35 years. But uh, I think what was really formative was that from my bedroom window as a kid, I watched the original World Trade Center go up. I could see it from my window. And I used to keep a little Lego model on my windowsill and I would match the construction of the towers, um, you know, that I could see on the horizon. Um, And so while I don't know why I did that, but I never really imagined I'd end up uh, help defining the skyline of New York. But I feel incredibly honored to do so as a as a born and raised New Yorker.
1: Well, I I love that story, particularly because we're going to spend a bit of time talking about 111 West 57th Street, which is um, a a formidable project. So, so you didn't think you would be an architect at that time. You just enjoyed seeing the building go up.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I just, I, I loved, uh, I loved being creative. I loved drawing. I loved my model trains. I loved Legos. I loved all of those things. And, uh, I think my parents thought I might become an architect, but, but, uh, I actually ended up uh, going more towards Wall Street to start off and started as a banker and didn't really enjoy it at all. And, uh, uh, you know, I used to take the, the the paper out of the copy machine and because it had no lines on it. When I was bored as a banker, I would draw, and then I would sort of hide those drawings in, in my desk drawer. And after a couple of years of doing that, I was – pretty frustrated. And I pulled open the drawer and there were 500 drawings or so in there. And I, I started going through all of them and I realized almost everyone was a building and I was kind of like, Oh, maybe you should be an architect. So, uh, I quit (laughs) and, uh, and did a career pivot and, uh, have never looked back.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a very, um, kind of unique background most architects don't have uh, let's say a business and certainly not a banking background so I think it does give you a certain level of authority about some of the critique that you have perhaps of uh, the current ways that we structure architectural practices today that I'm looking forward to delving into with you and we also share something in common I'm also a New Yorker native yeah. I was born born in Washington Heights oh, so excellent. um so I yeah. we share that <laughs> um, well, it's-
2: you know, it's a it, it, it's a well, we'll talk about cities later. But, yeah, no, it's it's an it's I feel very fortunate to have uh, to have been born here and to watch, you know, and when I was younger, the city was in trouble. And then to watch its kind of resurgence and now to see it a little bit in trouble again and to have the skills to try and help it move past this current phase um uh is 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 a really interesting position to be in at this time.
1: Yeah. So I definitely want to delve into that. Um, I think as we talk about uh, the, some of the work that you're doing in New York City today, but maybe before turning to the work, I believe that no one achieves success without teachers that inspire them or mentors that become invested in them and, and later support them. So Greg, who would you say have been your greatest mentors and what lessons did they teach you?
2: Well, you know, I've been I've been very fortunate to to know a lot of people. I've been introduced to a lot of different people in architecture um, over the past thirty years. But I mean, I think it really it really starts with Columbia and GSAP and um, the tenure that Bernard Chumi had as the dean there. Um, we were there right at a, a very pivotal time when it was transitioning from you know paper and hand drawings to digital. And, um, uh, you know, but it was I I really admired Bernard's leadership in a school at a time where things were much more about which camp you were in from a philosophical or theoretical or design or an aesthetic position. Um, You know, Bernard had a very inclusive faculty. So, you know, there was. Greg Lynn or Henny Rashid and uh, Stephen Hull and Robert A.M. Stern were all teaching in the same studios. And that was really interesting to me to to have that kind of diversity and of of thought that it wasn't just a, a sort of single pedagogy in the school and that Bernard was incredibly inclusive in that sense and wanted those battles and those debates to 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 happen. Um, And so I think we've always I think that was an incredible lesson to us. And um, we were very so we always, you know, kind of keep a very open mind about about um, design, about design, thought, about strategy, about who to talk to and that it's not an us versus them mentality. It's a it's a both and mentality.
1: I think that's um that doesn't happen very often but when it does i think it makes uh, all of us better in fact um so thank you for sharing that um so maybe we can turn to your work um specifically because i would say that from its inception shop architects has questioned the means and methods by which buildings are designed and produced early on the firm looked to other industries to help guide its thinking about the current making of architecture. Why did you do this and what did you learn through this exercise?
2: Um, Well, I think that, you know, all the founders of shop actually studied other things besides architecture and had other careers first. So I think that that kind of allowed us to come at it with a fresh attitude or, or an open mind or, um, it It just allowed us to to question things. Uh, and and, uh, you know, we saw how difficult the process is. And the, you know, I always say the worst drawing in architectural history is the little diagram that has owner, architect, contractor in three separate circles and a triangle, because that sets up this acrimonious relationship. Um, in the very difficult process of designing and building buildings and making cities, and we didn't understand why people weren't more aligned and why they they tried to pit people against each other. And so I think that that was that was one driver, which was we just said this is a really inefficient way of doing things and um and then I also think that you know we were just looking at at, other industries that were you know maybe it was because they had more resources or whatever but it was everything from computer graphics from film to aerospace to automotive and just watching the way 30 years ago they were using digital technology to really push and innovate their the their their fields and it hadn't really come to architecture yet and so we we really, um, look to automotive and aerospace mostly to, to think about, well, how are they designing? How are they perfecting? How are they refining? What are the effects of the things they're doing? How are they fabricating the parts? How are they putting them together? How are they delivering them? What are the supply chains? What are the, what are the results? What are the ways in which they think about beauty and effect and all of these things? And, and so in a way, by looking outside of architecture, I think we, we got to the core of some of the biggest problems that needed to be solved.
1: So I guess you you implemented, actually, some of those lessons from the research in a series of initial projects, first with a really small project uh, entitled Scuda, yeah. Um, which I, I'd love to hear you say a few things about. But in a very short span, you went from that small project to investigations that led to the design of the Barclays Center. So, tell us about this trajectory. <laughs>
2: sure. Yeah. No. It was. Um, so in in I th- I think that we were we were doing all this research on you know animation and simulation and computational fluid dynamics and CNC production and we were trying to figure out how this would have an impact on on the built environment. And, um, you know, I think it really kind of started with our PS1 project. So we, we won the little PS1 competition in 2000 and did the DuneScape Pavilion, which was this whole exploration of surface and program and structure being blended into a kind of single thickness. And while it was all digitally uh, modeled, um, you know, we made it out of a very tactile material, which was two by two cedar sticks. And and while it was this super complicated, very hard to even draw kind of object, we just made full scale templates um, of how to build it, and so it was this kind of translation from the digital to the physical that was, was super interesting to us, and and then that led to um, a pavilion at a park uh, in Greenport, which was a, a competition. That we got the commission for, and we did a, a carousel house and a amphitheater and a f- marina. But there was this one um, object that the town wanted—a camera obscura um, folly in the park. And um, you know, we used it as a research project to see if we could build an entire building where we could model every single part and have um, you know computer equipment fabricate every single piece uh, custom and have it shipped to the site and put it together. And so it was basically BIM before BIM. So we just did it manually, you know, and we, we made this, I don't know what it was, 2000 part um, uh, building and, and had it all fabricated and then it, it went together like a kit of parts and, you know, it worked incredibly well and it's still there and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful little object. And, and then that led to um, the Porter House, which was um, a building we did in the meatpacking district early in our career, where it was a, it was a historic uh, uh, brick building. And then we did a air rights transfer and a cantilever and um, built a kind of contemporary building on the top. And um, it was the first time that, we, that a, a CNC equipment completely fabricated the facade of a building so there were 4000 different panels 400 unique shapes it was all digitally modeled there were no shop drawings and it went directly from the 3D model to the to the laser cutters that cut all the metal parts and custom made a, a facade system and and the thing is that um you know we we just made it we had no facade manufacturer we just made it like you'd build a model and figured it all out and took the responsibility for it and executed it. And, and it, it worked incredibly well. And so Craig,
1: when you said that you made it, um, how did you do that? Did you set up a shop? You know, because at the time, you know, this kind of um, means and methods was, uh, you know, less typical than it is today, let's say, although today it's not certainly pervasive. Um, so what did you do? Did you set up your own shop?
2: Yeah, so basically um it's it's a great question. Uh, basically, we went to we went to facade manufacturers and we wanted to make it out of zinc and the upcharge for the zinc facade was astronomical and we couldn't understand why. Like, you know, the material is less than half of the cost of the of the project, but they wanted to charge like 40% more and we were saying like the, the you know, zinc isn't that much more expensive than steel. Like, what's the problem? And it was just that the contractors didn't want to do it. So they were just charging premiums for what they perceived as a premium material. So we just kind of said, Oh, where do you get the zinc? And they were like, A lot of it's made in France, you know, because they do these mansard roofs and they do the zinc bars and whatever. So we just went and to France and bought a thousand sheets of zinc that was one meter by three meters long and brought it back to New York and then designed the whole building around how do we cut one panel out of this or two panels out of this or three panels out of it? And we ended up getting like 97% use of our raw material. And we made the files and we sent it to a, a fabricator who just cut all the parts and folded it with computer breaks. And we even etched into the facade itself, a code system, which was the instruction set of putting the facade together. So we literally, and then we just wrapped the building with a roofer did the, fully adhered EPDM waterproofing. And then we had a a carpenter hang the custom zinc panels on the building. And it went together beautifully. And it, it goes against every rule in the AIA handbook of what you should and shouldn't do when it comes to When it comes to means and methods.
1: Yeah. And for those that are in the audience that are not architects, that would be the American Institute of Architects. And there's a very clear separation between the architects and involvement in what you're describing, which is means and methods. And I think we're going to dive into that a little bit later. Um, But let's keep going with the trajectory of projects. I interrupted you there, but it eventually led to the Barclay Center, which is I mean, a, a, a an enormous leap, both in scale and complexity. So can you, yeah, h- I mean, how did you get there?
2: <laughs> sure. Um, uh, what what had happened was, um so Frank Urie had designed a brilliant plan for Bruce Ratner at Forest City Ratner, um who was the developer of Atlantic Yards. And you know, usually arenas are not great neighbors because, you know they're when they're quiet, they have sort of dead walls and they kind of deaden the city and um uh frank had done a brilliant design where he kind of buried the the arena inside the base of four towers surrounding it so that like 80% of the arena was not visible and um that was a great idea and they wanted to build it and it was it had been approved but then the crash of 08 happened and so there was no financing for the towers um And so they had to redesign it as a standalone building and they were under some pressure because the tax laws were changing and um, stadium bond financing was no longer going to be tax deductible. And so they had a really, really tight deadline. And um, what they ended up doing was going to hunt construction um, who had done um, uh, several design build projects for the, for NBA arenas. And they said, if you can pick a, an arena we've already built. We have the steel drawings for it, and it fits on the site in Brooklyn. We can order the steel, and we might be able to get there. And but we needed to rethink the entire project um, because the um, the the project needed to be a different building for New York City. So we we took that model, and we we they came to us and they asked us like, how would you how would you take this model, take it apart, and then re rethink the entire project. And um, we came up with some great ideas and, and worked really well with, um, you know, with, with Bruce Ratner and Mary Ann Martin and Bob Sanna and all the people over at, at Forest City. And I think they, you know, at that time, we like our biggest project had been a 50,000 foot building. And, you know, that was maybe 20 million dollars. And suddenly we're working on a billion dollar project and i think the thing that convinced them that we could do it was they couldn't believe that we had taken the risks and gotten so into the details of means and methods and how to deliver and how to how to design using these emerging technologies and how to actually figure out how to put it together that that gave them the the, the trust that we could pull it off at a much larger scale so it was by doing it the exact opposite of what they tell you to do in school and by taking on risks that most people would say that's crazy to take on that risk, like to make your own facade and not, you know, um, and, but then I think that that gave us the confidence and the ability to figure it out at a much larger scale. And we ended up creating a joint venture with the facade manufacturer of the Barclay center and figured out how to build that, that, that uh, you know, uh, weathered steel facade, which has, 11,500 different shaped panels um, and is is quite a remarkable feat and was delivered on time and on budget.
1: So in a way that that uh fabricator became let's say like the contractor but it became a partnership essentially because they're responsible uh, alongside you so both exactly. parties are in, both parties are invested.
2: Exactly. So it goes back to what I was saying before, which is not this acrimonious separated, but you've got to work in you've got to work in partnerships to really push to push things forward and to innovate. And um, and use the technology to, to to help to help not only draw or or get the images of it or renderings, but to actually make the parts themselves. Um, so you know, it would have been almost impossible, you know, it would have been really time consuming to draw. 12,000 different panels, but we just wrote our own software to automate the production of all of those and then sent it directly to the CNC equipment to, to fabricate and, and make it. And then it was assembled into 921 mega panels and the mega panels were designed to be exactly the maximum size you can put on a truck and get into New York City without a special permit. So by doing, by figuring out all the problems ahead of time, we were able to get something uh, really kind of fantastic without without really exploding the budget.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to hear because I, I uh, in preparing for this conversation, I heard that you know aesthetics or let's say a predetermined image doesn't doesn't guide the work. You know, you sort of analyze the uh, materials and methods. Although somewhere along the line, I think there is a formal decision um, that is made. But what is interesting is that it does. There is the kind of modular aesthetic. All the projects are module um, to to, in, to some degree from small to large, and then the capacity or the maximum allowable dimension of the materials that you choose, oftentimes set that module. And then it's put together very much like you were saying earlier, like the automotive industry will put together a series of parts to create a whole. So I think um, it's interesting to hear how that gets developed in multiple projects.
2: That uh, you are it's exactly right. So there's where you could see how we looked at automotive and aerospace, like, you know, A plane isn't made in a factory with a bunch of people and they start, you know, like, oh, here's the, you know, it's made all over the world by multiple, by multiple manufacturers. And then it's all about, it's all about transparency and sharing the information and figuring out what the performance is and how it, what the shapes are and what works, what doesn't work. And then, and then how do you fabricate all those parts? How do you do it simultaneously and how do you bring it together in an efficient way to make the, to make the best product possible?
1: And But I'm curious, though, Greg, how do you make that first initial decision about what it should be made with? Oh,
2: that's a great question. Um, we just make it up. <laughs> we kind of sit around the table. I mean, you know, we, we we're it's just an exploration where we think about the site. We think about the context. We think about the history or the city that we're in or what we're doing or what the building is and start to just say, like, well, what would be appropriate here? You know, and
1: appropriate given let's say the historical context of the place or the materialities used or the materials used in that place yeah Um, or
2: even just what we're kind of interested in that you know like in exploring so you know when we did the american copper buildings you know um these were two towers kind of on a waterfront in a you know a a sort of sleepy part of manhattan and um you know we knew that they were going to be these objects on the on the waterfront on the skyline and it was that That was just a matter of what would be a beautiful material that we could watch age and gracefully patina over the coming decades. And that was where this idea of coming up with raw copper that would arrive like a shiny penny, turn chocolatey brown and eventually turn Statue of Liberty green on the waterfront in in New York, we thought would be almost like a kind of performance art piece for the city. Um, And so that was just us thinking about it when you go to something like 111 West 57th street, the, the, the tower here, we are building on top of, we're building a 1400 foot tower on top of a landmark and it's a beautiful landmark building. And the whole strategy was to move the tower on top of a landmark in order to save the beautiful part of the landmark and celebrate it and then slide the super tall behind that landmark tower. And, but we just said like, You know that was why we went to terracotta and bronze like this is an extremely elegant building that's connected to an extremely elegant original landmark that was a a warren and wetmore uh building from the 20s who were the same architects as grand central station and so Actually,
1: you know what, Greg? There is so much to be said about that project. In fact, and I think what I'd love to do is let's take a quick break, sure. um, because when we return, I want to discuss um, the project for One 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 West Fifty Seventh Street that you've just started to describe. Because, I mean, it is—I think, if I'm not mistaken—the the, the tallest most building, yeah, the, the most. Sl- is it the most slender building in the world right now? Yes. Um, yeah, and and I think you had to go through uh, an enormous amount of uh, hurdles to arrive at that final uh, building, and I want to hear that process and uh, and learn from it. So when we um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll have the opportunity to talk more with Greg Pasquarelli from Shop Architects on um, many of the iconic buildings that they're building today, and his critique about the contemporary structure of architectural practice. So do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
0: Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies infrastructure design architecture and the arts urban policy social mobility and much much more tune in every friday at 11 a.m eastern time 8 a.m pacific time so that together we can design a better world
1: voice america programs are now available
2: on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast.
1: Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast.
2: If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie.
1: Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Greg Pasquarelli from Shop Architects. And just prior to the break, we were starting to talk about the iconic building for 111 West 57th Street. And it can be said that New York is the bedrock for building tall. And your work is certainly contributing to the transformation of New York skyline. Um, so Greg, tell us, uh, can you describe uh, 111 West 57th Street to us and how it came to be?
2: Sure. Um, so our client, uh, Michael Stern of JDS, uh, purchased a um, uh, a very small plot on 57th, between 6th and 7th Avenue and all the adjacent air rights. And then eventually purchased the landmark Steinway building where Steinway pianos were sold for about a century. And um, he he could have, as of right built on the neighboring building and just gone straight up. That's what the zoning allows. Um, But it would really have kind of obliterated the beautiful tower on the historic, building. And so we um we looked at all the different ways to to play with the existing underlying zoning and um, and went to landmarks and said, if you allow us to build not next to the landmark, but actually on top of the landmark, but slide the tower around the back of the um the the landmark,, uh, you know, sixteen uh, story tower. It will celebrate the landmark better than building next to it. And which sounds a little counterintuitive, but um landmarks agreed. And so um it became this extraordinary narrow uh footprint that's basically 60 feet wide by 80 feet long, um, a tower that then comes up through the landmark. And um, our idea was to take the sort of historic way of thinking about the tower with setbacks, um, the sort of which is how people deal with it, you know, sort of the wedding cake effect. Uh, The kind of contemporary way that people have been dealing with light and air coming down to the street is sort of folding the tops of the buildings along what are called the sky exposure planes. And you could see that in a lot of buildings. And this was a building where we said, can we do both and? can it be this feathered setback situation that that relates to the dna of the historic towers of new york but does it in an incredibly contemporary way um and then uh the building so so an aspect ratio of a building is its width to its height so anything that's 1 to 10 and under is considered a standard building anything taller than 1 to 10 is, um, is considered slender. If you get to one to 15, it becomes exotic and very difficult to build. And some of the most slender buildings in the world are, are some of the apartment towers in, um, mostly in Hong Kong. And they're like one to 18, you know, one to 19. And this building is one to 23 and a half. So it was a radical uh, jump. And we worked with WSP uh, structural engineers to figure out how to build this building. And um, and again, uh, JDS uh, was not only the developer, but also the builder. And so there was an incredible, um, uh, you know, partnership uh, formed so that we could really solve these problems. And not only are we not only are we building this, but it's in the middle of Manhattan and it's through a landmark building. So it was it was an incredibly uh, complicated uh, project to undertake. And um, and the structure is basically a kind of H in concrete. And on the two, the east and west facades, which were the thick concrete walls, we punched some windows, but really it left the view to the north of the park wide open and the view to the south of the skyline wide open. And then we um, did these uh, CNC fabricated terracotta facade panels um, for each of the pilasters on the east and west facades to give this kind of beautiful texture with this kind of historic material uh, with all bronze filigree in between. And so the building has a kind of romantic New York uh, elegance, uh, but is... And so it feels like it could be a hundred years old or a hundred years in the future simultaneously.
1: Hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because it's like those, uh, I mean, obviously 21st century version of those slim medieval towers in San Gimignano, for instance, exactly. which uh, produces, you know, a very beautiful profile against the, the city. Um, but I'm curious the, um, uh, and again, I, I think I, being a practicing architect, um, I, I mean it's extraordinary probably all the things that had to occur to allow this to um you know to be manifest um at the end of the day it produces um I, I mean I, I, is it like 50 apartments Greg that are in this it's, building
2: It's six, it's only 60 apartments in so the
1: building 60 apartments On, Yeah Yeah and so I I, I think f- formally um at least my sense has been that you know architects Love the building, you know, and I, I, I believe it's you know a, a beautiful um, kind of figured building against the sky as you describe it. But I was curious because um, the American writer Joseph Campbell famously stated that you can tell a lot about a city uh, or what drives a city by its tallest buildings. And so I'm curious, from your perspective, what you think this building says about contemporary New York, because as you mentioned earlier, it's going through, and maybe it's unfair for me to ask this of you because you're an architect and you're um, but, you know, it's going through um, these dramatic kind of social challenges, right? Um, you know, sort of need for housing. Um, you know, there's some continued unrest um, because of the political situation. And so some have critiqued towers like this, not not yours specifically, but towers like this, that it serves, you know, very, very few. Um, yeah. So do you have anything to say about this? Yeah, I mean...
2: Absolutely. So, you know, we're 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 acutely aware of what the what the current situation is and and think that a lot of the criticism is is warranted. And, um, you know, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, we do we do a lot of affordable housing. We do a lot of market rate housing. We do some super luxury housing. This happens to be super luxury housing. Um, You know, one of the things that we we. Speaking with our speaking with our client, um, you know, we said, "Look, sixty extraordinarily wealthy people are going to get to live in this building." You know, um, f- our families, and and you know, but eight million of us have to live with it every day, and you need to spend at least as much on the outside as you do on the inside. And our client, Michael Stern, completely agreed, and that's why we have that extraordinary facade i mean it would be far more cost effective to have you know wrapped it in blue glass and just let it be you know another one of these towers and and um you know michael had that commitment also also a new yorker um to 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 make something that was also a gift back um you know and and but we we do understand that and um i think you know uh most of the buyers in, in 111 are American. They get the connection to the history of New York. They get the quality of the materials. Bill Sofield did spectacular interiors on this building. You know there there are some amazing details on it. Um, you know even the even the door handles are 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 custom uh, uh, bronze. Uh, Door handles that are the shape of the tower of the building in and of itself, so that every time you open a door, you've got the tower in your hand. At the same time, we spend the same amount of time and effort in doing affordable housing. And we do not, good design can be done at every single budget level. And that's incredibly important. And we're working on affordable housing projects all over the city. And, and some of our affordable housing projects, people look at and have no idea that they're affordable housing projects. They look like market rate housing because of the effort and time that we put into it to make sure that it's high quality, great materials, great space, um, and great public space um, to become become good neighbors. Um, yeah. And so it's think about to- the whole spectrum.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned it because oftentimes, of course, the super tall gets a lot of attention, whereas the um, more affordable housing projects are part of the fabric of the city as most housing is and can um, and oftentimes is backdrop as it should be um, uh, in large part. So I'm I'm glad that you could round out the discussion of housing in that way. Um, so maybe we can turn to one other project, Greg, which you've been working on. And in fact, your company is working with arguably some of the most innovative companies on the planet, like Google, and you recently completed um, a headquarters for Uber. Um, and through this work, I think you're exploring what the workplace of the future might be like. So can you share the lessons that you learned through perhaps a description of the project for Uber headquarters in San Francisco?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, I've been I've been saying this to, to my students recently, just that, you know, as an architect, you're working like what 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 the public sees is what the architect was working on five or 10 years ago. And you're you have to try and think five and ten years ahead all the time. So I was saying, I've been saying, you know, my head's in the 2030s right now and trying to figure it out. But a decade ago, we were really working on this idea of not being in these hermetically sealed environments, especially in the in the office space. And, you know, so many of these buildings are these sort of taut glass skins. It's all reliant on mechanical ventilation and HVAC systems. And we, we had been battling uh, constantly about bringing nature into the building having windows and doors that open having indoor outdoor space and um a term that we we my partners developed which is is it's not indoor it's not outdoor it's mid door and that it's these spaces where you can breathe and you can take a break and you can exercise and 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 we were working on all of this before before covid hit And um, and so one of the things that's been super interesting is post-COVID is now everybody understands why this is so important to have these living, breathing buildings. So Uber was the first time um, that we got to really work on that, where it was this notion of a, a kind of front porch or a a vertical quad, if you will. Like, you know, people, people like working in academia because you can step out into the quad and you can walk around and you can think and you can clear your head. But that's hard to do in cities where you don't have a lot of space. So the idea with a lot of offices is this kind of notion of folding the campus into the vertical skyscraper. And how do you then make the indoor-outdoor quad? And how do you make this... Mid door space and this breathable kind of building function. And so Uber understood that and were really um, supportive of that idea. And so a full third of the building um, is not even air conditioned or heated. Um, And it's where all of the collaboration spaces are, so the meeting rooms and everything else. And there are no elevators that are there that are right in that part. So it's all stairs. So it encourages people to be sort of. Even though you're in a vertical building, you're outside on a front porch using the stairs, meeting together, and it does two things. Um, it, It not only makes a healthier day in the office, but then also when you're looking at the building, the collaboration becomes the action in the facade of the building itself. So the building isn't really necessarily about the architecture, it's about what everyone's doing inside of it. And um, and then that facade uh, on the porch is made up of um, thousands of bifold glass doors that are all on worm drives. And they automatically sense the, the, the climate, the wind direction, the temperature, and they open and close automatically to temper the um, space on that front porch, if you will. And so it's this incredible breathing building. Um, and, you know, and then it opened in, I guess, 2021 or 2022. And, and you know, everyone said, wow, it's the greatest response to COVID we could ever imagine. And we were like, great, we designed it in 2015, but we'll, perfect, we're happy to do it. So what we do see in the future is, again, moving away from these hermetically sealed buildings and and into this kind of idea of indoor, outdoor space. Um, and mixed use buildings, like bringing housing into office buildings, you know, your, your home office is now, you know, your office is now in your home. And, and we really see that this, is this kind of blend is what is, is really where the future is going.
1: Yeah, I think you reiterate some points that other guests have made, where, you know, in a kind of post-COVID world where we're working differently, um, you know, this kind of polycentric models for urbanism seem to be rising up again. And then also that all buildings uh, or many buildings could be um, more than one use, obviously, as you mentioned. And, and I think your point also speaks to some of the timeless solutions for sustainability, even though you're a firm that really um, prides itself in technological advances um, that challenge the means and methods. What you're talking about, right Right now is the timeless um, lessons of you know passive systems, because much of the energy spent on our buildings are in fact to artificially light them and to uh, pump air into them. Certainly I'm right now in South Florida and I know that to be the case. So, so I think if we can at least address those, which really have very little to do with technology um, and more to do with the way in which we um, initially create the buildings, I think we can do a lot to be more sustainable hundred
2: um, percent. I mean, what you know, look also, one of the things that one of the most sustainable things you can do is build buildings that people love and take care of and don't renovate every 20 years because they're well thought out and they're well designed and they breathe and they live and they have flexibility. And we love photovoltaics, like all, we love all those technologies, but like just designing the building efficiently, beautiful, Beautifully with with high quality materials and making something that people take care of has a giant impact on 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 the the life cycle uh, uh, footprint of the building.
1: Yeah, and perhaps in listening to your conversation, I realized that if you um, if you take more of an active part in the materials and methods, right, then uh, you're able to introduce um, materials which are oftentimes higher quality, um, and because you're controlling the production of them in ways that perhaps a contractor working in certain methods, right, that they've become accustomed to, will, as you said earlier, might might um, disregard it as a choice and, or at least immediately state it's too expensive. So um, I think that could be a good segue into um, my next question, which is, again, you're not only questioning these means and methods of how we build, but also the structure of contemporary architectural practice. And I've heard you state, or at least put into question, the structure of the American Institute of Architects contracts and how we need to rethink the way we work as architects. So um, I think you were alluding to this earlier, but can you um, um, tell us what is wrong with this current model.
2: Well, I mean, look, it's a very complicated and entrenched entrenched system. And, you know, um, but the fact of the matter is, I mean, I think McKinsey did a study a few years ago where they looked at innovation since World War II. And um, construction was last um, in innovation of all industries behind farming. So there's a problem there. <laughs> and Um, And I think that a lot of the contracts are structured in a way and there's so much liability and there's so much, it's all set up, it's all set up to finger point. And, And like that, what, what's less efficient than, than doing work to blame other people, like take responsibility, take command, have expertise, you know, dedicate the time and figure out the solutions rather than, you know, as they say, cover your ass. So, the that's that's where we've always just tried to push the limits of what we could do. There's only so much we could do, but we've spent 25 years trying to do it. And I think uh, the quality of many of the buildings that that have been finished so far by Shop and the things that are under construction right now are uh, proof that the model works. Uh, but it still needs a tremendous amount of 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 uh, innovation um in the future to to make um a a better built environment you know it's 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 tough to build and it's tough to build in these cities and the way that the methods that we use um i think are antiquated and uh causing huge problems on every facet of the AEC industry
1: yeah and and perhaps um this type of um or this way of making buildings, um, I think right now might be explored at the kind of ends of the spectrum. Although I think you said you're also doing affordable housing and, and, and perhaps using the exact same techniques for these kinds of projects. Because one question is, it is it only in the, you know, kind of billion dollar budgets that one can uh, explore these techniques? Or are, are they as uh, meaningful in, let's say, lower budget projects?
2: I, Carrie, I think you're hitting something that's really important. In fact, I think they're more necessary in the budget projects because what we're trying to do is figure out how to squeeze every, make every dollar go as far as possible for quality materials and quality design and quality space at any budget level. So it's it's really about intelligently using whatever amount of dollars you have to spend. It's not just uh, you know, for, for, you know, the, 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 the really high luxury products, you know, at all. And so um, in fact, and so I, I think it's even more important for, for some of the other kinds of projects and, and it has a, it has an impact on sustainability. It has an impact on material use it has an impact on, on public space. Are you able, you know, look one of the other one of the other most sustainable things you can do is put density near mass transit right so if we're going to live in these dense packed cities you better have really high quality public space otherwise it's going to be a, a kind of miserable existence and so if you can plan not only the building as a really good building but what happens around it is well designed and well thought out and and um you know and has these kind of mixtures of uses and biophilia both inside and outside and connected to mass transit and have density and have beautiful buildings like that's the way forward right what's the famous line if you love nature don't live in it right you've got to you've got to kind of save that part of the planet and then live densely and smartly in really well designed um, um, neighborhoods with high quality materials and, and great kinds of public transport.
1: Yeah, and I think you also explore other kinds of models. I know we're coming to the end of the conversation, um, but you you've also uh, taken equity positions in your projects, um, meaning that you're not just rethinking the means and methods, but even the way in which um, you know firms can get paid. I think it's important to also just um, touch upon that um, because I think we do have to be creative. Of course, that involves more risks, um, but I think knowing that you know uh, a design firm is. Also exploring these ideas um, different ways that we can actually um, add value and then find a way to quantify our value in the built uh, world, I think is very important.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, we, we have, we've tried many models and sometimes they've succeeded and sometimes they failed and that's okay because we learned something from it. And, you know, what we, what we learned was that the more we were at risk the more design freedom we had because the the clients or the partners really tried to um really trusted us when we were at risk with them um and so uh sometimes it succeeded and sometimes it didn't but that's okay yeah
1: Um, and that's important i think for all to hear so in about a sentence or two i always end with what is your favorite city and why so greg tell me what's your favorite city
2: well I'm sorry it's very predictable it's 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 my home city of New York and yeah. I, mean, I love I love all cities I mean I you know I think the, I I I love Tokyo I love Singapore I love London I love um, Rome um they're all phenomenal places to be and spend time but I I just don't think there's any place as diverse uh, and where you can get as many different experiences as, uh, you know, in such a small place as New York. Um, yeah. While it can be really dirty and tough to live here, I'll I'll take it.
1: Well, as a native New Yorker, I can sympathize. And I want to thank you, Greg, for your work as a practitioner and an academic for taming, taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today. Um, and I'd like to a shout out to the listeners to so tune in next Friday where I will be speaking with author Colin Ellard, um, whose work is at the intersection of neuroscience, architecture and urban design. And his latest book, Places of the Heart, The Psychogeography of Everyday Life, explores um, the relationship between psychology and place and how this is changing with the development of technology. So do not miss this conversation. Thanks again, Greg, and I will connect with everyone next week.
2: Thank you, Carrie, very much. Have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week.